0: Episode 37, The Renaissance Begins. Hi, my name is Clayton Mills. Welcome to A Short Walk Through Our Long History, a podcast where we look at the events of history and examine how those events shaped our modern world. This week we're talking about the Renaissance, and it's hard to overstate how important the Renaissance was. It's kind of one of the highest high points in all of human history. I mean, there are Renaissance fairs all over the United States, including one in Texas that actually starts next week. Fortuitous timing that. But there's not really fairs for other time periods, are there? There's like no Reformation fair or Enlightenment fair. There's definitely not a Dark Ages fair. It's partly because the Renaissance was super important, but also it was a really good time in human history. It was a time when Europe began to discover some of the good things that had been lost since the Roman Empire. Renaissance, the term, means rebirth. It refers to a rebirth of the sort of beautiful things of humanity. Painting, music, architecture, literature, also the sciences and academics. All of those things flourished during the Renaissance after having languished for a long time. Hence the name, the Dark Ages, There was art in the Dark Ages, but it wasn't groundbreaking or new or really the kind of beautiful stuff that appeared in the Renaissance. The Renaissance started in Italy around 1250. It's hard to date it specifically because it was something that started gradually, gradual change in mindset and outlook of the people. But if you had to pin a date on when it started, you could pick 1253 which is the year that Constantinople fell to the Ottoman Turks. The fall of Constantinople created a substantial immigration of Greek Christian scholars and artists, many of whom ended up in Venice and Florence. But it's mostly safe to say that the Renaissance began in Florence. In A.D. 1250, Florence was a fairly wealthy city led by its wealthiest family, the Medicis. The Medicis helped welcome the scholars and artists from Constantinople, and they also started to finance the work of these and other local scholars, as well as artists and architects. One of the things that the Greek scholars brought with them, not surprisingly, were Greek manuscripts, including copies of works by Plato, Aristotle, and also the Greek New Testament. This had been more or less lost, these documents, because the West had been so focused on Latin for over 500 years. Now, this was important for several reasons. As scholars began to study the Greek New Testament anew, they became increasingly aware that the Western church had very substantially misrepresented what the Bible actually said. As the study of the Greek New Testament spread around Europe, many people felt the need to question what the church was doing. Now, we're going to come back to this in a couple of episodes, but I want to mention it here because, like I've said before, the Renaissance leads directly to the Reformation. Another key piece of the Renaissance in Florence was that Florence, because it was a wealthy trading center, had already begun to move on beyond feudalism into a more merchant-based economic and social system. This changed things like class structure, and in a way it also sort of broke the cultural hold that the church had on all of culture. The church in Florence was still very wealthy and influential, but so were the merchants and so were the old feudal landowners. It was a sort of a more balanced system with more opportunity in different directions, and all of the groups were competing for prominence and acclaim. And one of the ways they competed was by financing public art. I'm going to come back to this more in the next episode, which is going to be focused on the high Renaissance like the very key moments of the Renaissance. But there was this amazing confluence in Florence between wealthy patrons who wanted to pay for art and one of history's most impressive collections of pure artistic geniuses. I mean, you don't often get a group like this in a thousand years, but in just around 200 years, Florence had Dante, Petrarch, Machiavelli, Giberti, Brunelleschi, Donatello, Raphael, Botticelli, Michelangelo, and Da Vinci. I mean, that's all of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, plus others. I mean, all of the famous artists in all of history. How did these guys end up in Florence all together at the beginning of the Renaissance? How is that possible? These guys are the artists in all of history. I'm going to come back to them next week because I need to talk about the goldenest Period of the golden era of the Renaissance, and I want to focus on these guys and their art. But I want to say here that one of the reasons that the Renaissance started in Florence is simply because, I mean, how could it not? You put all those guys together and fund them to create art full time? Yeah, something amazing is going to happen. The only parallel I can kind of think of in history is having Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle alive at the same time during the Golden Age of Greece. Maybe Vienna, just after the First World War or John and Paul both living in Liverpool in the 1950s, but I'm getting way ahead of myself there. Not going there yet. I need to mention or re-mention Dante here for just a second, because his works were extremely influential. But I'm only mentioning him here, I'm not going to go in full into his work, because I want to talk more about that in episode 43, The History of Hell. But his works were an important part of the early Renaissance on the literary side. Part of the reason that he was important was that he wrote in Italian rather than Latin, and the popularity of his works also helped break the hold that Latin had on academic and popular writing. Marco Polo's Il Milione, which I had also mentioned already, was also written in Italian, and that was part of the change as well. Part of what was happening at the beginning of the Renaissance was that people all over Southern Europe were moving away from the sort of monolithic hold that the church had on every aspect of life and culture. This included controlling learning, academics, politics, art, literature, social classes, the economy, land. All of these things were strongly tied to the church and a culture that was based on church-focused topics. Even Dante's works, Inferno, Purgatorio, and Paradiso, were also very church-focused and theological, sort of, but he didn't write them in Latin, and some of his themes were also pretty far outside of what the church officially believed. There was a good bit of humanistic introspection in his works. And I should mention here, right, that Dante's works were somewhat a product of the Middle Ages and a Middle Ages mindset, but they were also the beginning of the Renaissance mindset beginning to take over. It's part of the shift. Another important part of this shift that happened in the late Middle Ages, another literary work, was the Canterbury Tales, written by Geoffrey Chaucer. This was written in England rather than Italy, so it's sort of outside of the Southern Renaissance that we're talking about here, but it's the right time period to mention this. The Canterbury Tales was finished just before 1400. Like the Inferno, Canterbury Tales was written in the local language, which, in Chaucer's case, was Middle English. It's one of the most important early works in English, and it was incredibly popular in its time. It was kind of the first bestseller in English, like Il Milione had been in Italian. The Canterbury Tales reflect the values of the period, and the tales poke a lot of fun at corrupt church characters and also the follies of the upper classes. The tales, like The Inferno, take on some religious topics and raise questions about them, though the tales are much more lighthearted about it. But its widespread popularity shows that it was popular at this time to question the teachings of the church openly. This is part of the culture of the Renaissance. On the website, by the way, I have a pic of a first or second generation manuscript of the Canterbury Tales that I saw personally in the Bodleian Library in Oxford. Also, for those of you who are interested, I posted some links on the website to some YouTube recordings that I did where I read some of the Canterbury Tales. I did this for school. One of them is the prologue to the Canterbury Tales in Middle English, and it sounds something like this. One that April with his the root of March hath perced to the rute. Anyway, you can hear the whole thing if you follow the link on the website. Both Dante and Chaucer were really writing during the end of the Middle Ages, but their works were the beginnings of the changes that would become fully evident in the Renaissance. The popularity and widespread circulation of their works also shows that the culture was becoming more open and less repressive. Dante and Chaucer were part of a process of many artists and thinkers beginning to think differently and explore both very new and very old ideas after about a thousand years of thinking and art being, well, not that creative or innovative. Part of what was happening was that these creative people now felt the freedom to do new things. There was also the kind of peace and prosperity that creates an environment where creative people are freed up to go do their creative stuff. That stuff doesn't happen as much when everyone is just kind of struggling to survive. As Thinkers and scholars got to study and read the Greek texts coming into Italy from Constantinople. They sort of rediscovered some of the Greek classics and some of the Greek mindset. They were influenced substantially by the Greek thinkers, including Plato and Aristotle, and also some of the Muslim commentators on those Greek thinkers, like Averroes and Avicenna. Another way to look at this cultural transition that's happening is to see it as the birth of humanism. Humanism as a philosophy and worldview— Is the idea that mankind is the most important thing. This is opposed to, or as opposed to, a religious point of view, which would say that God or religion or religious activity is the most important thing. Humanism for itself is not inherently atheistic, that is, it doesn't make the claim that God doesn't exist, it's just that it takes the overall focus of things like art, literature, philosophy, history, architecture, politics, and culture, and focuses it on humanity and human potential rather than on spiritual or religious topics. It's also kind of a change from a middle age type focus on man's sinfulness and general awfulness to more of a celebration of the good things about humanity, like our ability to create and appreciate beautiful things, our ability to love, our ability to reason, Humanism emphasized the dignity and the potential of man and the beauty of the human form and saw the purpose of mankind to be in control of all of nature and to appreciate it. It also values a focus on realism and reality rather than ideals or spiritual allegory. This mindset shift affected art, literature, politics, everything. We'll talk more about the artistic realism in the next episode when we focus on the golden ages of the Renaissance. But I just want to say it's a big change of emphasis. It's a big change of what's important. Some of the things that had been sort of suppressed during the Middle Ages were now instead being celebrated, like the human form, for example. In the case of the Renaissance, this change of emphasis created a strong surge of new thinking, art, new values, and big changes all over the culture. So one of the first really big moments of the Renaissance happened in Florence in 1401, and you could also potentially date the beginning of the Renaissance to this period of 1401. There was a competition in Florence to build two new bronze doors for the baptistry of the Florence Cathedral. Two artistic geniuses, Ghiberti and Brunelleschi, competed for the lucrative contract to design and build the doors, and Ghiberti won. The East Doors, which I have put a picture of on the website, are amazing works of art. There's incredible detail and amazing use of perspective in the engravings. They were highly acclaimed, and they set off kind of an artistic arms race in Florence and all over Italy. This contract for the baptistry doors set off an ongoing bidding war throughout Florence as wealthy patrons sought to have these increasingly famous artists create new works for them, both public and private. I'll talk more about this again next episode as we look at that creative part of the Renaissance. But the baptistry doors were kind of that starting point of it. But I also want to make the point here that we are now up to the 1400s. Now this this might have been the century. This was the biggest thing that had happened, really, in human history since the start of the Roman Empire and the Pax Romana. I mean, if you could choose to live in any time period of history and spend your 70 to 80 years of Earth alive at any point in time... Being born around 1400 in Florence might be one of your best choices. It was that kind of time period. Part of the change in culture that led to the Renaissance was that feudalism, as I said, was being replaced by a kind of merchant-based capitalism. Another way to say it was that the middle class was growing after years of almost not existing. And it's from the middle class that the great artists came, not from the nobility and not from the peasants for the most part. The nobility were the ones financing the art, But there were also rich merchants who are not the giant landowners. They just had a lot of money, and they were financing art as well. Again, it's a shift in values, as what's important in politics is no longer just land, but money. Of course, money was important before, and land is always important. But now, money was the most important thing, not land. As Lord Cutler Beckett said, currency is the new currency of the realm. This movement towards capitalism also changed the social structure and kind of broke the back of feudalism, at least in southern Europe. It also began to change the political power structure. One of the authors who sought to describe the new political situation of the times was Machiavelli. He wrote several books, but his most important ones were The Prince and Discourses on Livy. Discourses was a commentary on Livy's history of the Roman Republic, and it praised the efforts of the Roman Republic, and it commented on the structure and the balance and workability of the Republic. The Prince, however, was a work that described how a new prince coming into power should go about consolidating and holding power, and Machiavelli advocated using violence, deception, fraud, and fear to rule a population. It's from this book, The Prince, that we've inherited the word Machiavellian, which basically means being ruthless as a ruler and using fear to control your people. The Prince was banned by the church, which probably made it more popular. The real distinction in Machiavelli's work, though, was that he advocated from a totally new sort of mindset, a new approach, he advocated using what works best rather than trying to achieve an ideal in politics like Plato had described in his Republic or like the church described in its teachings or like Augustine's City of God. Those were talking about ideals. Machiavelli said, no, let's just use what works. Since fear and fraud and guile work, you should use them, as many leaders down through the ages had already discovered. It was, in a way, kind of the very earliest version of utilitarianism. Use what works. It's another example of the values of humanism, too, in that it takes the focus of politics off of the good, off of the ideal, and it focuses on what just really works in the real world of humans and seeks to describe things as they really are rather than as they should be. Francis Bacon, who we will come back to in a few episodes, Francis Bacon was one of the first proponents of the scientific method. Right? He's an early, early scientist, and he mentioned the thinking of Machiavelli, as foundational to the realistic study of the world. So Machiavelli makes an influence on the thinking of Florence and all of southern Italy and it begins to spread across Europe. We have this flowering of great art and thinking that kicks off the Renaissance and like I said it's hard to overstate how important this period was. Why is the Renaissance important to us today? Well you could say that the modern world is defined today by a scientific, humanistic worldview, for better or for worse. Both humanism and the scientific method were birthed during the Renaissance. At first, both were kind of a reaction to the oppressive, sin-and-penance-driven worldview that dominated the Middle Ages. There was, truly, a kind of oppressive sense that you could not think outside the box during the Middle Ages, and that box was defined by the church of its day. I think the human mind and the human spirit both long to defy that kind of, you will think this way, or we will shun you, we will punish you. Humans long to break out of that kind of oppressive, controlled groupthink. Humans rebel against that. So humanism and the scientific method, as well as this explosion of artistic creativity, they were all part of this immense creative energy collectively saying, we're not going to do what you're telling us to do, we're going to do what we want. And in some way, that kind of impassioned, educated resistance to oppression, of any sort. It's one of the best things about humans. It's really one of our best features. And though that led to a lot of great thinking, science, and art, which we will look at as we go forward in the podcast, right? it has also admittedly led to some negative things. As the great philosopher Sting once said, I never saw no miracle of science that didn't always end up with something worse. Advances in technology were coming, like the ability to navigate the oceans, gunpowder, the rediscovery of concrete, medical advances. But each of these, as we will see, though they made positive benefit at the time, they also had some pretty dangerous, destructive, and painful side effects. I think it might be fair to say that our current culture today also has some sort of cultural memory of the repressiveness of the Middle Ages. A lot of the energy of the movement of progressivism comes from a desire to throw off all kinds of top-down cultural control. Really, progressivism isn't progressing towards anything. It's really defined by what it's progressing away from. What is it progressing away from? Well, the church in any kind of sense that there are absolutes of right and wrong. Ironically, to be progressive today requires that you be culturally repressive to anyone who disagrees with you. Anyone who thinks differently than the progressive group think. It's kind of ironic that progressives are recreating the oppressiveness of the Middle Ages that they're also trying to run away from. In the Middle Ages, you couldn't be a teacher in public if your opinions went counter to the official opinions of the church. You, you'd be excommunicated if you taught against what the church taught. That was oppressive, and it needed to be changed. But today, you can't be a teacher if your opinions are in any way conservative or religious or are not aligned with progressive values. If you try to teach something outside of the currently politically accepted, politically correct worldview, you'll be shunned, silenced, deplatformed, fired. You'll be culturally excommunicated. It's kind of odd. But humans have always resisted this kind of oppression of their thinking. So maybe progressivism and its oppressive groupthink will be shut off and we'll have some other kind of new renaissance. So yeah. The Renaissance is important. Besides being an awesome period of creativity, it also sets the stage for the modern world. Things are about to get really, really energetic. Think about what's going to happen just in the next upcoming 300 years and in the next few podcast episodes. After the Renaissance, we'll see the discovery of the New World by Columbus, and then shortly after that, the Reformation with Martin Luther, and then the Counter-Reformation, then Elizabethan England, Shakespeare, the English colonies being established in the New World, The Enlightenment, Rene Descartes, and the birth of the modern era. Lots of super important stuff packed into the next 300 years. From 1400 to 1700 was a heck of a productive time in Western Europe. We'll get to all that in upcoming episodes. Next episode, we're going to talk about some of the greatest artistic geniuses in all of human history when we look at the guys that the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles are named after. These guys are important. But we'll also take a look at one simple, hardworking German guy who was probably not a genius, but he might have been the most important person in the last thousand years, Johannes Gutenberg. Join us next episode for the High Renaissance, one of the most important periods in all of human history.